Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Rochelle Unreich has been a journalist for 38 years, writing cover stories for The Age, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire and Rolling Stone, and writing regular columns in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Herald Sun and Elle magazine. Today I'm talking to Rochelle Unreich about her new book, A Brilliant Life, My Mother's Inspiring Story of Surviving the Holocaust. Rochelle Unreich, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much, Greg. I'm excited to be here. Rochelle, when did you realise you were destined to record your mother's life story? And how did your mother, Mira, respond to the idea? I think I always thought I would write her story. I started getting published when I was 20 while I was studying arts law at university. And I developed a freelance career from that, just sending off articles to newspapers. So once I was published, I really thought one day I have to write my mother's story. But I kept pushing that off. At first I thought, I don't have the gravitas, I don't, I'm not old enough, I don't have really the knowledge to do that. And it became more daunting as time went on. She always did know that I had planned to do that, but we never really discussed it. She thought it was a good idea, but nor did she push it. So I think she would be really proud, though, to see her story in a book form and realise what care I've taken with it. A Brilliant Life is biographical, but researching and writing about your own mother makes it a very personal undertaking too. In piecing together the contour of Mira's life, where has that journey taken you, both physically and emotionally? Emotionally, it was difficult at times because even though I'd heard her stories about surviving the Holocaust, I didn't really feel those stories. And when you immerse yourself in a world of research, you are trying to imagine every step. So when I was writing about her in concentration camp Auschwitz, I was pulling up photos and videos and trying to really feel what it was like, looking up the temperature of the the day she got there and making it almost be a physical experience. But physically, I couldn't go very far because I wrote the first draft of the book during Melbourne's lockdown number six in the COVID pandemic. So It was really interesting to do a lot of that research and immersion from my desktop, but emotionally I really did learn so much about my family in a way that I wouldn't have understood before writing, even with the information I had. Just for example, I discovered my aunt Olga, and what I mean by discovered is my mother always spoke about her sister Olga, but in very brief terms and I didn't really get a sense of their relationship. But once I really studied what she said about Olga, I I realised so much more. There was an age difference between them. Olga was 26 when she was deported and my mother was 15. And what I realised through writing this is they didn't have a chance to really establish that sister bond that most people do when they're both adults And I just felt so close to Olga in a way I never had while my mother was alive. So that by the time I began writing about her, I just found myself at the computer weeping as I was putting her story onto the page. Conversations with your mother were fundamental to this book. 
How did you approach those conversations at such a sensitive time in Mira's life? I started interviewing my mother, as you'll know by now, in the last six months of her life when she had really deteriorated from her cancer diagnosis. She had really lost a lot of her spark and she started to look different and even her voice had changed. I was used to this really sing-songy voice that she had. She'd call me up and say, hello, Rahi. She was just so buoyant and she lost a bit of that. And so I didn't really think it through. My brother said to me, why don't you interview mum just to distract her from the illness? And so that's what I did. I really at that point thought I knew her story. She'd done quite a few testimonies for the Holocaust Museums and I wasn't sure what I would ask her. But what I realised was I wanted to know who she was, not just what happened to her, but what made her tick. What did she like? What were her goals in life? What had she felt that she'd achieved? What did she regret? These questions that we never get to ask our parents and, you know, to a great detriment really. And what I realised was it was such a moment of beauty in those conversations. I describe it in the book as as if we went on a mother-daughter holiday for one last time where we loved each other fiercely and laughed and cried I had that element to it, so, but I didn't really think it through so much before I started. Let's get back to the beginning. Mira was born in a Czech village in 1927, the youngest of the five children of Dolphy and Jenya Blumenstock. By your account, Mira's childhood was a very happy one. Almost idyllic, I would say, because although they weren't well off, they all worked hard. They were a really tight family unit and she didn't really have a care in the world. She loved her family. She was close to her siblings. She adored her parents. And that was one of the things I found out when I interviewed her. I remember thinking, how come my mother's not incredibly depressed after her Holocaust experiences? How is she so joyous and buoyant? And one of the clues came in learning about her childhood. I, I asked her what her childhood was like and she described to me that when the family went to see a play, which was often, whenever a theatre group or performance came to their, their little town, they went to see it. Afterwards, they would all retire to their bedrooms at night and from their darkened bedrooms, they would start singing out the lyrics of the songs they remembered. And, of course, you, you don't know those songs off by heart, so they were misremembering lyrics and singing and laughing and cracking themselves up, and they would do this until they fell asleep. I realised that she came from a real place of joy, that her family held joy tightly and that that was their default. And I think that that was one of the huge things that helped her survive and then thrive afterwards. Mira was witness to the escalation of the tensions in Europe at that time, around World War II. What was her life like in those early days, just before the invasion of Poland? She was really young. So she was 12 years old when war broke out. And she was only aware of the situation on the edges. She heard her father talking. She heard murmurs of what was happening in other countries. But in Czechoslovakia, they felt really removed. They felt that Jews were welcome citizens in their community. So I don't think she really realised in those early days what would happen. The thing that stood out for her, I guess the demarcation between a kind of before and after, was when German soldiers marched through town and there was something in that atmosphere that was so heavy and loaded 
And she told me that when they marched through town, she started laughing in hysterics. And it was the only time her father reprimanded her really angrily because I'm sure he realised that there was something ominous afoot. Mira's father, Dolphy, was one of the very few who actually heeded the early reports of concentration camps in Poland and of the atrocities that were happening there. Why weren't people listening? I think it was it felt so far-fetched that a group would be targeted with hatred and that something would come out of that hatred, especially when those rumours were coming about Germany because, as my mother said, everyone remarked, well, Germans are a civilised society and this is, the, this is the modern world. Nothing's going to happen. And there were early people who started to escape from camps and tell stories. And even Elie Wiesel's book, Night opens with a similar scene where somebody has escaped and nobody believes him. It, it's, it just felt impossible when you heard those stories, I think, were people being thrown in a pit, people being shot at. I just think it was so hard to believe because the reality was so horrible. And Dolphy took a number of steps in order to protect his family as best he could. All of those steps came with a substantial risk. But what could he do in the face of such oppression? Well, I think he did all he could. He, first of all, tried to get his family out, but by the time he did that, it was too late. At different points, all his children converted to other religions. They were under false papers, and they were also under papers that exempted them from being deported. And he built hiding places for them or arranged hiding places elsewhere. And, of course, all of those things relied often on other people doing their part too. So, so many non-Jewish people really helped him activate those plans and really were also concerned about the situation for the Jewish people and at their own peril, stepped in to help. Mira witnessed the murder of her father, Dolphy. Uh, she and her mother were sent to Plushoff. Mira had spent months in four camps, including Auschwitz, and had also lost several members of her immediate family. What does a survivor do in the immediate aftermath of that experience and what was Mira's pathway out of there? I think so many survivors responded differently. But for my mother who had missed out on her entire youth, who had lost so much, she couldn't look backwards. Her only way of survival mentally was looking forwards. Immediately after the war when she moved to Paris, she was already starting to plant the seeds of being a happy person. It's really hard to imagine how she did that. And I guess a clue for me comes when she was interviewed by the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne and they they asked her about her experiences and she just listed a litany of horrors one after the other. And at the end, the interviewer said, is there anything you learned? And she said, in the Holocaust, I learned about the goodness of people. And the key to my mother's survival and mental survival was to not focus on man's incredible capacity for cruelty, but focus on the individuals who stepped in and helped her and showed kindness and showed grace. And that was her way. She looked at the light in the world, even in the face of unfathomable darkness. Mira arrived in Melbourne in 1959, worlds away from the devastation in Europe. But did she find the haven she was looking for? 
Australia was a real haven for Holocaust survivors. In Australia, we have the largest population of Holocaust survivors per capita outside of Israel. And for her, I think once she landed, it was already a perfect place. It was geographically remote from where she felt a lot of the trouble had been. And it welcomed her. She felt immediately it was a place where she could earn a living and where her children could be raised in a beautiful atmosphere, in a peaceful land where there was so much opportunity. So even though she came and had to work and there were struggles financially, she still loved it from the outset. She was absolutely passionate about it as her home and always was. Let's talk about Mira as a mother. I noted that Mira's approach to cooking vegetables uh, is similar to my own mother, that is to boil them till the colour drained out of them. But with all that life experience behind her and a demonstrated capacity for survival, what did Mira encourage in you? She was incredibly encouraging for all of her children. So there are four of us and we each laugh about how she just championed every one of us. And we each think we're the favourite because of how much love she bestowed on all of us. She encouraged independence, first of all. I remember when I was growing up and people said, what are you going to do when you grow up? She would often interject and say, go to university. Education was really important to her, I think largely because her own stopped at 12 and she was no longer allowed to go to school. But standing on your own two feet and being independent was really her first criteria for success. And one of the things I always remember her saying was, there's no such word as I can't. Maybe it's I won't or, but she just insisted that her children really go forth in the world and use their abilities to progress. She was an incredibly loving mother. You asked about her mothering. And it was only when I had my own children that I really realised how much she sang to me, how sweet she was with her voice and with her words, how demonstrative she was, and really how encouraging. But tempered with, I think, practical realities, I started writing when I was studying law. When I first got published at the age of 20, she was terrified, I think, that I would give up my law degree. And so she said to me, a bird in the hand is worth more than a cow on the roof. I had no idea what that meant. So that was her practical advice. But of course, once I could show that I could earn a living from writing, there was no one more enthusiastic. And have you retained her approach to cooking? I certainly have retained her ability to put something in the oven and forget about it, burn things. But that's not to say that she was a bad cook. She was a fantastic cook. Just not every dish worked out. But like any Jewish mother, she'd make 10 dishes and nine would be superb and one would be the one you threw in the garbage. Or not in her case, she never threw things out. So with such a rich and varied life, what's the legacy of Mira's experience for you and your family? Has it echoed down the generations of your family in some way? I think her legacy is partly to remember who you are and where you've come from. So we are all very proud of our heritage. And I did write this not just for readers, but for my family in particular, so that her stories will be held tightly in one place. But I think we mostly know from her, what we do in times of trauma and darkness, it's always recognising that no matter how dark it is, and even if you can't see the light, 
Your essence can be that light shining through. I think she taught us not to judge people, but to remember their capacity for great humanity and to live life to the fullest, to grab onto it because life is short. You never know what befalls you and you really have to make the most of every moment. Rochelle, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much. I hope all your listeners get to experience the magic of Mirror. I've been talking to Rochelle Unreich about her new book, A Brilliant Life. It's published by Hachette and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.